Speaking of racism, white fragility, that controversial term used to describe a phenomenon surrounding white people and racism. Allow me to read this excerpt from Robin D'Angelo on the topic. White people in North America live in a society that is deeply separate and unequal by race, and white people are the beneficiaries of that separation and inequality. As a result, we are insulated from racial stress at the same time that we come to feel entitled to and deserving of our advantage. Given how seldom we experience racial discomfort in a society we dominate, we haven't had to build our racial stamina, socialized into a deeply internalized sense of superiority that we either are unaware of or can never admit to ourselves, we become highly fragile in conversations about race. We consider a challenge to our racial worldviews as a challenge to our very identities as good, moral people. Thus, we perceive any attempt to connect us to the system of racism as an unsettling and unfair moral offense. The smallest amount of racial stress is intolerable. The mere suggestion that being white has meaning often triggers a range of defensive responses. These include emotions such as anger, fear, and guilt, and behaviors such as argumentation, silence, and withdrawal from the stress-inducing situation. These responses work to reinstate white equilibrium as they repel the challenge, return our racial comfort, and maintain our dominance within the racial hierarchy. I conceptualize this process as white fragility. In today's episode, I am joined by Dexter Pierce, and we are talking about our January book, White Fragility, by Dr. Robin D'Angelo. You're listening to Speaking of Racism, the podcast dedicated to frank, honest, and respectful discussions about race and racism in the U.S. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Pull up a chair and let's talk. Special thanks to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know featuring Jay Lang. Today's show, I am welcoming Dexter Pierce. We are going to discuss the book White Fragility by Dr. Robin D'Angelo. But before we get started on that, I want to um, just do a little intro here with our guest and find out a bit about Dexter. So tell us a little bit about yourself. That is a, that's a broad question. <laughs> well, you tell us what you want to tell us. So I, I will keep it relevant to uh, to what we're discussing here. And But uh, I'm an attorney. I'm an labor and employment attorney, always kind of been moved by the idea of justice. Interesting enough, going through law school is when I became hyper aware of the fact that we, we had kind of two different justice systems based on, this, on the color of your skin. Uh, so, so with that, that kind of motivated me to get into racial reconciliation work. And so this has been a passion of mine. I mean, all the things that, other things that motivate that, you know, I, I was married relatively early. I got two little girls, uh, you know, children of color. And mm-hmm. so this is a, a, a real life thing day in and day out. But when I'm not dealing with heavy topics like race, either at my job or just in my free time, I like to escape. I like to escape in just fantasy worlds. So uh, my wife and I just started watching Game of Thrones. So I know I'm eight seasons behind. <laughs> but uh, we, it's a lot to get through. But we finally started been watching that this week. So that's my, my fantasy escapism, which it doesn't seem to be any better because it's, it's still very heavy in politics itself. 
right? Well, you're ahead of me because I have not watched Game of Thrones. And the funny thing is my mother is like, oh my gosh, you need to watch Game of Thrones. It's so good. (laughs) I'm just like, I don't have time for that. I mean, I'd love to, but you know, I'll be the person in like 10 years who catches on. (laughs) No, I I completely, we're like that. I mean, now with Netflix and streaming shows, I mean, we're discovering all kinds of shows that that were hit 10 years ago. So we're right Right? there. Yeah, that's funny. So when we decided to start this 12 books in 12 months, I was playing around with the idea of reading White Fragility first, but I wasn't sure. And then I saw you on social media saying that you were reading White Fragility. So I was really excited. And I decided, well, let's make that the January book. And then I reached out to you to ask you if you would be interested in podcasting on it with me. So that's kind of how it started. But can you tell me kind of what your reasons were behind choosing the book when you chose it? Yeah. So it's, it's a book that I had seen, I had seen recommended a number of times, but it, it really it started kind of in my, my professional area. So I do a lot of trainings on anti-racism, anti-discrimination in, in the employment context. So we'll go into, go into a company, we'll go through our, you know, our, our general spiel of what, what it means to respect your coworkers. I mean, why racism is bad. Um, something that should not be necessary, but it is. Um, and then sitting in, in trainings done by other people, I've heard Robin D'Angelo mentioned and, and countless times. Um, as someone who is, you need to read her work, you need to know what she's doing. And so I've been doing 12 books in a year for the last two or three years. And I just knew I needed to hurry up and get to her book. So I made it in January. And part of it is motivated by this desire to kind of understand really what white fragility is. That way I know how to address it. And the other part is just, I mean... I just needed to know what Robin D'Angelo was saying on this topic, though. Yeah, I mean, I actually, I'm going to admit that when I started reading it, I was wondering, like, you know, I've been doing this for a while and I've been listening and learning and sitting at the feet of a variety of people. I have watched her on video. I've listened to countless interviews with her. And I felt like, well, I kind of know her premise, right? But when I started reading it, I was really surprised by how much it helped me to get a very clear, concise picture, like essentially from beginning to end in a sense. She has a really good way of just laying it out and putting words to things that I've been seeing and experiencing, sometimes even feeling, but not really knowing how to put words to them. So that was kind of a surprise for me. From this book, you know, I went in thinking a little bit like, eh, do I really, what am I going to get out of this book? And I didn't even realize that was my thought until as I was reading it, I was like, wow, I am so glad that I'm reading this. So I think I had a similar mindset as you did. I mean, having been involved in these conversations and seeing videos, it's kind of like a certain point you're how, how much more can they add? And then I think also being black, it's like, okay, how much of this is really for me to begin with? Um, and I think she, she addresses it. I think there's a, right. a, a quick note in there about kind of what you can gain as a person of color. But to your point, I mean, there was a lot that was, I was just blown away with kind of how she describes certain phenomenon. The way she breaks it down was, was, was crystal clear. And I can take that away and say, okay, this is what I need to be looking for. You know, the way she talks about racism on a spectrum, and I won't get, get ahead of myself here, but, but no, I was, I was shocked by, the amount of new information um, and just how I benefited even as a black person being aware of, of how she's breaking this down. So. Yeah. And it was interesting too, because one of the things I'll, I'll read here, um, just her intro, 
I, I couldn't even get past her intro without underlying most of it. And one of the things I could really relate to, and this is something that I struggle as a white woman, you know, using my voice in this. She says, so though I am centering the white voice, I am also using my insider status to challenge racism. To not use my position this way is to uphold racism. And that is unacceptable. It is a both and that I must live with. And I really related to that as a white woman, just feeling like, you know, I want to shine a light on this. I want to promote th these conversations. And yet at the same time, I want to do so being careful not to center my voice, you know, and, and just wrestling with that. And so when I read that, I was like, yes, okay. You know, this both and, and the way that she just grapples with the fact that like, unfortunately, this is the necessity of, of this brokenness that we live in. I wondered about that as well. You know, if, if I'm a white person doing this work, there is that fine line between what it means to take up space versus to be an ally. And we, we talk about this in our group as well. Not every black person has the same answer on this. But for me, it was more about use your voice in your spaces. And then when you come to our spaces, be willing to listen. You know, I, I think it's there's a lot of people who step in assuming they figured it out and then want to teach people of color, which there's, there's a time and place for that. I'm not saying it doesn't. It shouldn't happen. And that, that's the big thing. It's, you know, go right. get, uh, I heard one person say, you know, come get your people is really what it's about. You know, you go get your people uh, and worry about them. Oh, it's so true. And, and it's this staying in your lane and even being able to understand and determine what your lane is, I think takes a lot of time and a lot of listening and a lot of observing and a lot of sitting. And that is not something that uh, a lot of progressives or white people do when they start getting this realization or revelation about racism. It's like they skip that middle part and they go to action. And in that, they end up causing a lot of harm. So I went to an event like a couple of years ago called Get Your People. And I had no idea what it was. I just knew it was an anti-racism a workshop of some sort. And I walk in and there are all these white people. And immediately I'm like, oh, lovely. A sea of white people. What are you guys going to tell me about racism? And where are the people of color? Right. You know, like I had this arrogance and this perspective and there were panelists and um, there were two women of color. And one just said, the reason that we're doing this is because we are asking white people to go get your people. And we need you to be shouldering the burden of dealing with these conversations and walking people through these tough things. Because when people are really heavy in white fragility, when they don't even realize what it is or accept that it exists, those conversations can be really abusive, Absolutely. right? And really like just frustrating and stressful for people of color. So when, when I got that ask and that permission, I was like, okay, I'm on it. And that, that kind of started my journey of more active speaking. And I started dinner parties and then it moved into this podcast. That's my little backstory on that. So getting, getting your people speaking into your spaces and understanding that like where your spaces are. And, and so. What you're saying there is so key. I feel like, and I, like you and I were kind of briefly touching on this on social media the other day. I feel like I almost want to require white fragility as reading for any white person before they step into active movement in anti-racism work. I would completely agree. So I mentioned that you know, the first book that I read with my racial reconciliation group was Divided by Faith. 
And for the longest time, that kind of broke down. It was, it was an incredible intro to what the issues were between white and black evangelicals. And it you know, broke down what racism was, institutional racism, and why these problems are, are deeper than just being nice to a black person. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was my intro book. You know, if you want to come to this group, if you, I mean, it wasn't required, but if you want, it, it was my recommendation. This mm-hmm. is where you need to start. As I've been reading White Fragility, it, it is leapfrog divided by faith. Now, it's still going to, you know, depend on my audience. If I'm in a heavy church setting, it's, it's probably divided by faith. But White Fragility, it impacts everything in so concisely mm-hmm. and so well written that it, it's just a great starting point. I mean, there's more information out there. There are more authors, obviously, to be, to be read. But as, as a starting point, White Fragility is, is the book for me. I would recommend. Yeah. And, and I, I feel the same because, you know, again, she gets into and, and starts with one introducing that we have a problem. So there are a lot of white people who live in predominantly white spaces and they may work with some people of color and have some touch points and, and they're not really aware of the division. And so in, again, the introduction, she says, White people in North America live in a society that is deeply separate and unequal by race. And white people are the beneficiaries of that separation and inequality. As a result, we are insulated from racial stress at the same time that we come to feel entitled to and deserving of our advantage. Given how seldom we experience racial discomfort in a society we dominate, we haven't had to build our racial stamina. And one of the things that I notice is everybody has an opinion about racism, right? Like every white person I know has a very strong opinion about racism, but they don't necessarily have an understanding of just how divided we are. And so one, I think she does a great job of, of just putting that out there and making that argument. And if you look at maps of, of segregation and how segregated we are, you cannot deny the fact and the data that supports that we are very racially divided. So step one is understanding that. Then step two, I love how she gets into the definition of racism. So what did yes. you think about, um, you know, just how she defined racism and, and, and all of that? So, yeah, it's actually, uh, so you mentioned your book is underlined. Uh, mine is the same way, underlined, tabbed, highlighted. <laughs> I, I can't read through a book without doing that. But, but the racism definition that she broke it down so, so soon was, was key. And I, I've seen, I've seen similar definitions before. I mean, you have prejudice, then you have discrimination, then you have racism. But it's a concept that, that many people miss. Um, and so oftentimes I'll have conversations with people about racism, you know, white people. And what I realized soon in the conversation is that we just have two different working definitions of racism. And if yeah. we can't, if we can't get on the same page there, this whole conversation is fruitless. And, mm-hmm. you know, so again, requiring white fragility as, as a intro book would, would help do some of that work there to let us have productive conversation. Yeah. The idea that we all have prejudice and prejudice is, is neither inherently good or bad. It's when you begin acting on negative prejudice that you have discrimination. And then when you couple that discrimination with, I think it says legal authority and institutional control, that mm-hmm. is when you have racism. And when you have people who are, who are marching, whether it was, you know, in the sixties or today, we're not marching because we want to get rid of that mean person who called us the N-word one time. You know, we're talking about institutional and structural rape, structural racism, the systems that have changed. You know, the mean people aren't going away, and I'm not too concerned about them unless they are sitting at the heads of institutions making decisions about my employment, my, my, my bonuses. You know, that, that's the problem. And so for her to walk people through that 
I, mean, I hope that really clicks. That again, this is not about making everyone be nice to each other. It's about a tackling system that, that change lives. Well, I think the, the definition of racism is so key. And when I first started getting into this on a communication level, I realized very early on that we're functioning from very different definitions. For me, the thing that I always say to people is I am racist. And it's not about are you or aren't you. It's where are you on the scale? So let's yes. stop clutching our pearls. Let's stop freaking out about the term and let's get to work to dismantle it. And I think she does a really good job of walking people through that in a, in a, maybe an easier way in a sense. Mm -hmm. Um, but so let me ask you, so you're doing this work and what have you found or what resonated with you about the challenges of talking to white people about racism? Well, I mean, she, she hits on it and, and kind of gave me the language to discuss it before I knew what it was, but it's, it's this good, bad binary. The idea that when you talk about racism or if you talk about someone being, you know, actually being racist, they instantly shut down and say, well, I'm not a bad person. I can't be racist. As opposed to, I can be racist and still be a good person, which is a different conversation in itself, but they, they don't get to that point. And so now you're not just mm -hmm. debating, you know, whether racism is bad, but you're debating whether this person is, is an evil or an immoral person. And you're never going to make, you know, make headway in those conversations because no one's going to admit, even if they are, they're not going to admit to this idea that they are evil or immoral. And I mean, that's the biggest impediment in these conversations when you, actually get someone willing to talk about racism if they, if they don't have the right working definition. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm so curious, like for li those who are listening right now, for the white members of the listening audience, if you haven't really had significant relationships with people of color historically, and you don't have like good friends who, you know, you're in just honest, loving relationships with, but you have really strong opinions about racism. Let me ask you why. And where do those come from? Yeah. Because it's so often so uninformed and yet such a strong response. And so that's where I love how she explores, like you said, the good, bad binary, because if you can just let go of that, and that's why I always start with that, like I'm racist. All right, let's work with that. This isn't about, like you said, morality and all of those things. It's about understanding that there is a, a structure and a system that has been since the foundation of our country, since before the actual foundation of the United States. And that has led to where we are today. And so we have to learn and we have to understand it and we have to study history and we have to work to dismantle that. But there's no way we're going to be able to if we can't deal with and address those facts. And that's where this whole idea of white fragility also is being like a violence in a sense and and just uh, another form of racism where, you know, it prevents people from being able to dig into that. Because before you can ever get there, people are ticked off and they're offended. You know, one of the things I realized, too, as I was reading this is everything she talked about as an example of how white people respond. It is so predictable, right? Absolutely. And that was really interesting to me. So here's what she says. She says, we don't understand socialization. When I talk to white people about racism, their responses are so predictable. I sometimes feel as though we are all reciting lines from a shared script. And on some level, we are, because we are actors in a shared culture. A significant aspect of the white script derives from our seeing ourselves as both objective and unique. To understand white fragility, we have to begin to understand why we cannot fully be either. 
we must understand the forces of socialization. And, and the way she got into, you know, like the individual. And, and I realized like individualism is like the apple pie of American ideology. You know, like we're rugged, we're individual. How dare you lump us together and so on and so forth. And so often like people in the dominant culture just don't even understand the privilege in that idea. Yeah, it's right there with the, uh, the myth of meritocracy. Right. I've, I've made it. I've, I've done this on my own. You know, the two uh, foundational American principles. That don't apply to people of color, apparently. I mean, I, I think it's interesting, you know, the way white fragility works is that it, it shuts down conversations. You know, people get defensive and you just cannot proceed with the substantive conversation after that mm-hmm. point. But this idea that, that everyone is racist or that racism is on a spectrum or a scale, I don't think it's that novel for people of color. I mean, I think, you know, for better or worse, I think a number of people of color have always looked at white people and said, you know, you're racist. It's just a matter of how much. Mm-hmm. I can tolerate a certain amount of racism. We, we expect that in our day-to-day life. The way she brings it to the forefront as this novel concept is because we haven't been able to share that. And I know she talks a lot in the book about this idea that you know, people of color, you know, it's difficult for us to truly trust white people. There, there are markers. You know, has your friend ever corrected you on racism? Have they ever um, you know, called you out on something? Have you had these deeper conversations? And I think if most people ask themselves those questions, the answer is no. I mean, you may have one, it's, it's rare that you even have more than one or two black friends. I can't remember what the, the statistics are on that number, but it's, I think, 80% of white people don't have more than one black friend. Wow. And then if you even have that black friend, is there anything more than just a, a number and, you know, a contact in your phone, or is there an actual relationship there? And we know just from the data that it's rarely ever a relationship. And then you get to that, that even more intense level of relationship, authenticity, where they're having these, these conversations, and that's just not happening. I mean, I, I would think it's humbling for, for white people. Obviously, I, I can't relate mm-hmm. to that perfectly, but it, it just it just goes to show how white fragility harms not just people of color, but it harms white people as well because you're you're deprived of these conversations, you're deprived of being able to actually address these things, and deprived of authentic, authentic relationships. Well, and that's one of the things that I believe so wholeheartedly is this idea that until all people are seen as fully human, none of us are able to really be fully human and that there's so much loss for white people in not having relationships cross-culturally. And that was the, I remember the first time I heard D'Angelo say that it was in a video that she did and and the, the thing that she said, and it just struck me and it resonated so much. She said to think that I could go through my entire life, I could grow up, I could go to grade school, middle school, high school, I could go to college, I could get married, I could raise a family, and I could work, and then I could die. And never in that span of life have a significant relationship with a person of color and not even see that as a loss. You know, like, wow. So back to predictability of responses. So here's the thing. You read this book and you start reading the responses. And I could speak to like the humbling. So for me as a white woman reading this, it was like, oh, yeah, you know, like I I could definitely remember saying or thinking those things at some point in my journey. And it was really humbling the first time I realized that I was not unique and I was not special and I didn't come to these ideas on my own. 
when you start to see that the narrative is the exact same, you realize, oh no, somebody definitely told me and every other person the exact same thing over and over and over again to the point that we actually thought it was an original idea. It comes off almost as a, as a perfect script when I'm in conversation after conversation with different people. But there is this idea that is, you know, it's an original idea. So I'm looking at the part where, where she writes just about, about this narrative and she goes through the, the statistics. I say she mm-hmm. is, you know, Dr. D'Angelo, you know, the 10 richest Americans, 100% are white. 93% of people who decide what we see on TV shows, 90% of people who decide books we read, 85% of people who control what, what news is, is covered. All of these things that, that inform our narrative, that inform the societal narrative are coming from predominantly white people. 82% of our teachers are white. I mean, if you just stop and think about that, you have to, you have to imagine that you have to be able to understand that at a certain point, that's going to color the entire narrative that you have. Uh, regardless of how much critical thinking you do on your own, you're being spoon fed a narrative day in and day out. And you know, she talks about this a little bit in the introduction. People of color are not immune to this. And we talk about this idea of you know, decolonizing your mind. We've bought into I say we, you know, myself included, there's, there's still a lot of societal narratives that I've just accepted as mm-hmm. this is the right way. There's no inherent normity or objectivity to it. It's just, this is what's been pushed on me from dominant culture. And I, I use people like Ben Carson or Sheriff Clark as people who right. meet black people and full-heartedly support, you know, white mm-hmm. supremacy. And those are, those are the extremes. But I mean, I'm, there are a number of ways that I, I contribute to that on a day in and day out basis just because that narrative is pushed at me so heavily. And it's, it's a conscious and ongoing process of breaking from that and, and correcting those stereotypes, particularly when you look at, you know, the separate topic of evangelicalism oh. and what goes on in the church. You know, it's, it's just a strong white narrative being pushed mm-hmm. up. One thing that I thought was really interesting is how she got into, you know, on the topic of like the predictability of responses. Um, I mean, we could go through and read those, but one of the big things that I hear a lot about is affirmative action. And it was really interesting to learn. And I would like to study the statistics on this more, but to learn about the fact that, but to to learn that white women were the primary recipients of affirmative action was really interesting. So this is what she says here. Uh, Consider the enduring white resentment about the perceived injustices of affirmative action programs. There is empirical evidence that people of color, especially black people, have been discriminated against in hiring since the ending of enslavement and into the present. In the late 1960s, a program was instituted to help ameliorate this discrimination. Affirmative action. There is a great amount of misinformation about affirmative action, as evidenced in the idea of special rights. For example, people commonly believe that if a person of color applies for a position, he or she must be hired over a white person, that black people are given preferential treatment in hiring, and that a specific number of people of color must be hired to fill a quota. All these beliefs are patently untrue. Affirmative action is a tool to ensure that qualified minority applicants are given the same employment opportunities as white people. It is a flexible program. There are no quotas or requirements as commonly understood. Moreover, white women have been the greatest beneficiaries of affirmative action, although the program did not initially include them. Corporations are more likely to favor white women and immigrants of color of elite backgrounds from outside the United States when choosing their executives. 
No employer is required to hire an unqualified person of color, but companies are required to be able to articulate why they didn't hire a qualified person of color, and this requirement is rarely enforced. Additionally, affirmative action never applied to private companies, only to state and governmental agencies. And when I read that, you know, I realized like for myself, I also held these misconceptions. And so I found that very interesting because I have had a number of conversations about my work in anti-racism. And one of the first things that people talk about is this. They talk about affirmative action. They complain mm-hmm. about it. They pontificate about it. And I'm I'm just realizing like, ah, I have such a deficit of understanding, but also I've got the, you know, dominant narrative stuck in my head as well. There are so many misperceptions around it and it's, it's easy. So I can understand where the resentment comes from if it operated the way that people think it operates. You know, if we're just, if I'm a qualified person, you know, I've worked here for five years, I'm applying for promotion and somebody who has you know, never done the job, unqualified, comes in and takes a job from because they're black. You know, we can talk about equity and whether that makes sense on different, different levels, but I, I understand the frustration there. Also, the fact that it's just in like state institutions. I was, I was in law school, and this may not matter to people who are not lawyers, but when Abby Johnson from uh, Texas, the white girl, was challenging affirmative action at the University of Texas, that case was at the Supreme Court, and it kind of had me diving into affirmative action, you know, the arguments for and against at a different level. And at that point, that's when I learned, so this was 2014, 2015 learn that no white women are the, the biggest recipient of affirmative action. You know, because women women are a diverse category and there clearly has been, you know, denial of opportunities to women in mass in this country. And so it, it makes sense, but they have you know, it's it's kind of supplanted, you know, all affirmative action programs because it's easier to hire the white woman. Uh, Michelle Alexander actually in the New Jim Pro talks a little bit about affirmative action at the end of her book and how it's you know, to the extent that it's working for African Americans, it's often working for African Americans who are already near or at the top uh, you know, of, of the social status level. Um, it's working for you know for the middle income. It's, it's it can't pull out the blacks who are really in poverty because again, affirmative action is not taking unqualified people and giving them opportunities. It's taking qualified black people who normally would not have the opportunity because of implicit bias or, or, or overt bias. And so people people get that wrong and they assume, oh, I'm given you know I lost my job to this black person who didn't know anything. One, that's that's just factually not true. You probably lost it to a white woman. But two, you lost it if you did lose it to a black person. They had very similar scores, if not higher scores than you, because they had to be qualified to even be considered for the position. And so I deal with that a lot in, in the employment context. So one area where we're struggling, uh, or just, you know, corporate America is struggling, is increasing diversity. And there are all kinds of these diversity fellowships and diversity, you know, affirmative action type programs to, to go out and hire people early on. Um, and even in these programs, though, what you're seeing are white women are the people being hired because, it's, again, it's a comfortable decision. And how do you get around that? When it, I mean, it, it, is, it is federally prohibited to hire someone specifically off race. So I can't say, I, I need more black people. I'm going to hire only black people. Because that violates the law because this, this idea of reverse discrimination and, and a conservative Supreme Court a while ago. So since we can't do that, we're forced to kind of have these clever ways to hire people who really should be there. But it just it's not very... It's not very effective. So this is a topic that I've, I've read about a lot. Uh, Thomas Sal, who's actually a conservative black person, doesn't write as much today, but was heralded as, as the token black conservative intellectual for a long time. 
wrote a book called Affirmative Action Around the World. And so that was one of the books I read last year, thinking that I'm going to go in, you know, and there's, there's nothing he can say that I'm going to, I'm going to agree with or understand or, or, or think that makes sense because we're starting from fundamentally different positions. But there was a lot in there that why well, did not sway me from affirmative action as, as the best of bad options. It did point out that no, it, it doesn't really do the job that we want it to do or that even its proponents are thinking it's doing. It does much better than what, than what we have to start with. So I think it's necessary. It, it needs some tweaks because it's not really gathering as many people of color as it thinks of it. But again, that's not what, that's not what is happening. And people don't, people don't get that. Yeah. And it's relatively new for me as well. Like, as I mentioned, this was you know, 2014, 2015 when I realized that the dominant recipient of affirmative action were white women and that it, you know, it was much more narrow than I, than I thought it wasn't. So how often do you deal with, or do you deal with cases like this in the type of law that you practice? So I don't deal with affirmative action directly. To give an example of how it would come up in, in, in my life work, it would be, you know, someone would sue the company, an employer, an applicant would sue the company and say, I did not get hired. And they would say it's because of my race. And so at that point, that's when we work with the company to, to investigate first off and make sure that's not the case. But to Dr. Angelo's point, there has to be a, an articulable reason for why, you know, let's look at the resume. You know, the resumes, do, do they line up? Let's look at, there are scores in the interview. I mean, what were people's comments? What were their notes? What's the educational background? You have to be able to walk through these and make a strong case that, well, no, you should be able to make a strong case. The law does not require that strong of a case to be made. And that, that's the issue that I have to have not enforced. Uh, but that, that's where I see that. So mm. you know, it's when the company is being sued uh, for alleged discrimination. Oh, I've worked here for 20 years. I've applied for all these jobs. Haven't got them. You know, well, let's look at, let's look at these individual applications. What, could it be because of race or could it be for other reasons? And it's what I've realized working on the employment on the employer side that no, it's not always about race explicitly. Now, that doesn't mean that this person is not dealing with actual racism and there's not implicit bias going on. But there are times when decision makers, they just have legitimate reasons and, and that can be articulated, that can be pointed to. So it's made me back off that my racism is, is everywhere in every decision stance to it's only in, in 99% of you know, <laughs> situations now. So yeah, there we go. I'm, I'm becoming more objective. You know? <laughs> I think that's probably my favorite statement of this entire. <laughs> I like that. So, you know, another thing that D'Angelo gets into is a couple of popular ideas that I still see and I'm surprised by in a sense. And it is one, the the whole colorblind ethic. That's what I've called it up until now. Now I'm calling it colorblind racism which I love because it is a form of racism. And then, you know, I hear a lot that focusing on race is what divides us. And so what do you have to say to any of that? What are your thoughts on those? Like when you read those, was there anything where you're like, oh, you know, I, I run into this colorblind racism. Um, I hear people say, like, do you get critiqued a lot because you're very vocal? Do you get critiqued a lot and, and accused of dividing? All the time. I mean, we can point to any sector of my life, whether that is personal family life. So I'm, I'm mixed. Um, mom is white. My dad is black. You know, I was raised kind of in, in both homes. And you know, I was raised by a white mom who believed that being colorblind was the best thing to be. So for a lot of times, you know, we were raised with this colorblind ethic or this you know, colorblind racism that you know, it doesn't matter if you're, you're white or black, it, you know, just treat people good. You know, thankfully, I had my father and I had other influences. And I realized that regardless of whether I wanted to be that way, that's not how the world is going to see me or, or treat me. Mm-hmm. So I was able to kind of develop out of that. But I've been accused, both, you know, predominantly in Christian settings, uh, yeah. of being overly divisive by talking about race, 
you know, in law, in law school, there's this huge debate, you know, whether you talk about race or not. And there was a, I want to say it's, you know, Chief Justice John Roberts, you know, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, who basically said, you know, the way to stop discriminating by race is to stop discriminating by race. So let's stop acknowledging race in job applications or in employment, you know, college applications. Let's just stop acknowledging race and then it will stop being a factor. I think that is completely ridiculous and, and asinine. And yeah, it, it's this narrative that if you are talking about race, if you're highlighting the racism in the room, you are being divisive rather than just identifying and diagnosing a problem and asking people to help solve it. It, it gets crazy. She, she gives a example kind of in her introduction about, about women's rights. You, know, you, you cannot talk, you cannot address the fact that women were denied the right to vote if you weren't talking about the fact that this impacts women specifically. Um, you can't just say, oh, we have the franchise, because that, that's a false statement, because it does, not everyone had the franchise. So you have to dive into this and know some people do, some people don't. What's the difference? In that case, it's gender. In these cases, it's race. If you can't highlight that specifically, you can't have a colorblind solution to a racially ta- tailored problem. Well, and this this is key, and this leads us into the fact that race is a social construct, right? So the thing I was running into before I really started learning the history of our nation and the, the creation of race and the role that that plays, you know, I would hear people use that knowledge that race is a social construct as a way to avoid talking about race. And, and, and it was so frustrating to me because while race is a social construct, it's true. We have to ask, why was it constructed? For what purpose was it constructed? Because only then when we start looking at that, are we actually going to understand why we are where we are today. And I'm excited because in March, we're going to read Birth of a White Nation. Have you heard of this book? I've heard of it. I don't. Okay. I just heard of it. So, yeah. So it's written by Dr. Jacqueline Badalora, and she and Robin D'Angelo actually do a lot together. And she is going to come on the podcast and talk about the book in March. So I'm really excited That's about amazing. that. Yeah, right. And and I'm going to tell you very honestly, I reached out to Robin D'Angelo and I knew like the woman is like so busy, right? <laughs> So she wasn't going to be available. But I also was like, but I'm really excited to have Dexter. And I think I actually would prefer to have Dexter than Robin D'Angelo. So I was like, all right, no problem. You may be the only person who's ever said that. But uh, I, will, I will take that as a compliment. And I, right? I appreciate it. Yeah. So so the the importance of understanding history is so key. And I'm fascinated by, uh, you know, Germany, for example, and what they've done in working toward reconciliation and working toward reparations and just how vastly different their approach and our approach has been. Yeah. So it's like, so, hey, I'm sorry that we're talking about racism, but it's not dividing us. It speaks to white centeredness. If we talk mm-hmm. about racism, suddenly white people are uncomfortable with it. Suddenly they become aware of it. And something that I've been hearing a lot from white people as I do this work is one, you're talking about it more, you're making it worse. The media is talking about it more, the media is making it worse. And the thing that I tell my white friends is no, 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 you're actually just seeing it for the first time. Thank you, social media. Thank you, cell phones and videos, right? 
Complete, completely agree. You know, it's uh, and it just it just gets to the you know, the tip of the iceberg with what we're seeing and what we're talking about. I mean, this is what people don't understand is that this is the lived reality of you know, fourteen percent of this country of people of color, you know, black black people. They see this on a day in and day out basis. I mean, we've known about police shootings forever. Uh, I mean, it was yeah. I mean, we're, we're just now getting them on camera, and so while certain people feel like it's being forced in their face all the time, they're getting a fraction of what really goes on. And so this idea yeah. that you know exposure to a problem is is it's going to be divisive. Like I, I don't even understand how that works in their mind. Like if I try to understand it to them, I, I fail to do so. I mean, you want to tell a doctor that. They've created the problem by identifying cancer in your body. No, we're highlighting an issue, and now it's up to you to go out and solve and address it. And pretending it's not there is only going to make it worse. And I think uh, that's actually from you know, The Color of Compromise. So I've read a little bit into that book. If Jamar Tidbusey makes the cancer analysis, that's, that's not mine. But it, it's just so true. And this idea that we are creating division by pointing out the obvious, it, it's always insulting to me. And it's, it's one that comes up all the time. Yeah, and and I've brought up that cancer analogy a lot. When I was 18, I was diagnosed with cancer. So it's a very real thing to me. And and I always say, you know, I had a choice. I could have gone and pretended I didn't have it and done nothing to work on it and then died. Or I could have done what I did, which was believe my doctor, you know, go and and seek medical attention, go through chemotherapy and the necessary things to work toward cure. And I'm 41 today as a result of that, you know, but I had to face that and I had to deal with that. And no person in their right mind is going to, to do the other. And and that's the interesting thing, because I say if we can't apply what we apply to the issue of racism in the U.S., if we can't apply that same logic or we don't apply that same logic to a cancer diagnosis or something of that nature, well, then maybe we need to change the way we're looking at it. Or maybe we need to come to grips with the fact that there's something amiss in the way that we're viewing that. The uh, intention over impact was another thing that really stood out to me. This is kind of my last thought on the actual book here. One thing that that really, I think a lot of white people struggle with is, but I didn't intend that. You know, my heart is in the right place. I want to affirm people or I want them to experience life more abundantly. My intention, my intention, my intention. And I think the important thing that she points out is that intention is not more important than impact. And and we have to ask, what is the impact of our thought process, of our words, of our inaction, sometimes of our action, and how are we allowing uh, people of color and friends of color to speak truth into our lives, whether it be through a relationship, but also through, like you said, there are so many amazing authors, writers, speakers, activists who have put out so much, and we're going to highlight those things over the year, not just in the books we read, but, you know, in other areas as well. And those can be people who we open up to, to call us out, the, the white folks here in the audience, to call us out in wrong thinking, to touch on our white fragility. Because I'll tell you, there are some people out there who I'm like, ooh, I still have some fragility here. You know, like, and I really appreciate that because it's like, I want that gone. 
you know, and worked out and bye bye. So, so I think that that was something that was really uh, profound to me. How about you? Are there any other things that you really felt like wow with the book? So I want to touch a little bit on, on the intent percent guy because that's something that I, I, I deal with on a day in and day out basis in my, my job. You know, we have claims mm. of race discrimination or claims of, of, of sexual harassment. I, I think is when it, when it comes up the most. And, you know, the manager is, is hugging all the, all these, his women coworkers, um, or women, you know, subordinates and saying, well, I didn't intend anything about it. You know, it's, you know, yeah, I hugged them and they may have been uncomfortable. With, I'm sorry they took it that way. And what the law says is clearly that, you know, intent does not matter. You know, it doesn't matter what you intended by when you went and caressed her back. And there, there's, there's nothing that makes that okay in the workplace. And, you know, I, I love when that's pointed out because, again, it goes back to the good bad binary. That if people see themselves as good people, regardless of whether they made an outright racist comment or not, you know, they did not intend it to be that way. So it cannot be that bad. Don't pick on me. Um, it's, it's kind of how it goes. And, you know, if you wanted to help me get down the stairs and you kick me down the stairs and get me down the stairs faster, I don't care that you tried to help me. Like, I still have a broken arm. So we have to deal with that regardless of what your intent was. I, I think that that's mm-hmm. key that she highlights that. Um, and something that I, I wish people could kind of understand and, and, and dwell on a little bit more. But the, the last, last thing yeah. that kind of really jumped out to me kind of throughout the book is just this idea that, you know, I mean, the status quo is, is really set up to benefit, benefit silence. You know, it's, it, it costs something to, to get involved. It, it costs something to speak up, whether you're white or black, to correct your white friend, to address an issue of, of racial injustice. You know, and it's, it's much easier for certain people to just go with the status quo. And, and, and silence and neutrality has always benefited the status quo, but that doesn't work for people who have historically always been oppressed. It's, you know, it's kind of, you know, what, what are the costs and what are, what are you going to risk? I hope people can read that and, and figure out that you know, something's going to be required and the injustice is great enough that your, your discomfort is worth paying that cost. Cause it's, it's not asking anyone to give any more than that. I mean, this is not cases where we're asking people to give their lives. You know, no one's asking you to be Heather Heyer and go march in Charlottesville. No one's asking you to be a freedom rider and, and go rally, <laughs> rally the black people down, down in the South. This is literally just, you know, hey, that joke was not okay. Or, you know, have you thought about why you're hiring people this way? Um, these, these are little easy things and it's only going to cost you your, your discomfort in most cases. And I, I hope, mm-hmm. I hope people are willing to do that. And, and they're not in most cases. We know that. I mean, that's, that's, that's verifiable, but hopefully the book can help move people to that. Yeah. And so where do we go from here? I think you summarized that in what you were just saying, but that was kind of the, the final thing that she got into is so what do we do and where do we go? And I feel like one is, is like you said, we hope people read this book and we hope people are open to this and don't just read it, but pass it along and recommend it as well. If there are people you're going to engage in conversations with, have an extra copy with you. It's available, you know, in audio format too. Like however we can, I think getting this book into people's hands will be really helpful. But yeah, so so do you have any final thoughts? Because I mean, I would be happy to even end it at the end of what you were saying there because it was very good. But anything else you want to add to this idea of where do we go from here? Just one other thing. And I mean, she has in the back of the book, she has a list of resources. Mm -hmm. And I cannot stress enough how important it is to, to do the work. I mean, you, you're obviously doing that. Um, but that's the one thing that, it, that is just so discouraging to me 
it's how many people want the quick answer. You know, oh, I met with a black person. I asked a black person. I got this. You know, I've had several coffees with people at my church, and they always want coffee. I don't even like coffee, but they always want to go out and like, let's have, let's meet for coffee and have me tell them my story. And then like, oh, okay, thank you, I get this, and I'll never see them again. I'll never see them speak up on these issues. Um, you know, to them, that was that was the work. But no, you have to I mean, read a book, watch a film. If you're not a reading person, there are audio books. You know, for I realize that not everyone is you know wants to be reading or has the time. This is going to require mm-hmm. some additional effort. It's a problem that's been around since before the country began. You're not going to solve it over a cup of coffee. So that that that's the my final step is you have to do something. Yeah, and I just want to say this and and pick your brain on it a little bit. But like, I feel like asking you out for a cup of coffee, white person to a man of color, like, and like, that is not okay. I don't know, maybe you feel differently. But like, the thing I've told people in the past is like, don't tokenize friends of color or people of color in your congregation. You know, like you can go and you can learn and you can hear stories from people where there's not this extra emotional burden placed on you. Because who else is going to say, hey, I heard you had this challenge in your life. You know, you went through this, let's get together and you, why don't you bear your soul for me and tell me all about something that's painful, but I have no investment in your life. And and there's no trust built between us. I feel like, and, and maybe I'm wrong here saying this, but like, I feel like that's also very spiritually abusive within the church because there's sort of this, this thing like, oh yeah, we're brothers, you know, in the Lord. And like, we should have, be able to have these conversations. Like, how do you feel in this process? So my, my views on it have, have fluctuated, but I, I would say I agree with you in large part that it's, and there are better ways to get the information. There are ways that are less harmful than going up and finding a convenient black person you know, and the nice looking black person is, is what it is. Um, a person they're comfortable with to go ask them to be, you know, help me, you right. know, help explain this to me in a way that makes me comfortable. And that is, it's, it's dehumanizing. Um, it's, it's painful because you have to walk through all that again. But there are other times when, when I, I kind of embrace being a token. Uh, I look at that more kind of in representation. I'm one of the few black attorneys at my firm. So when we have events where we're trying to recruit black students, I'm often asked, to be, to be the one to go. And it's generally done in respectful ways mm-hmm. um, for, for what that's worth. But I embrace that because if I'm a law student, I want to know that there's someone like, like me who works in, in corporate law, you know, at the largest law firm in Oregon. You know, I, I think that's powerful. So yeah. I'm willing to go and willing to be tokenized for their sake, for the people who look like me who are trying to get to this level. But when it's coming from, when it's for the benefit of someone else's comfort, that's, that's problematic. <laughs> and so I, I agree with everything that you said. Mm-hmm. That is, there are just better ways. I mean, if you want to hear someone's black story, go pick up a book. You know, they have poured out their hearts and their souls in several hundreds of pages and, and countless books for you to read. And then let's talk when you have when you have a baseline of information. Yeah. So, Dexter, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about this book and the work that you do. Glad to be on. And that concludes our episode for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you like our work subscribe, leave us a review, tell your friends about it. If you're challenged and you're not quite sure and you're on the fence, stick around. We appreciate you being curious enough to listen in. Until next time, take care.